Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Al Murray. And Al, we've got a very exciting and interesting guest. I've got to say, I've been really, really looking forward to this one. Well, yes, today we are speaking to... Um, now, I don't know if uh, if you're one of those people who ends up going down rabbit holes on the internet. And this gentleman is responsible for one of the... Not a rabbit hole, a warren. A damn warren of the things. If you're If you're interested in aircraft, pointy aircraft... Strange aircraft with four sets of wings, pushers, pullers, whatever. Uh, Joe Coles is your man from the Hushkit website. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Joe today. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Hey there. How you guys doing? It's nice to be on. I've been aware of Hushkit for quite a while now. And it's the sort of thing, thing I've dragged Jim over to because, uh, you know, we, we have a fairly firm rule on the podcast. We're only really interested in the Second World War. You're not, of course. You're interested in... in aircraft of every aspect for anyone who doesn't know about the hush kit site explain what it is because it's not just it's got satire and it's one of the things you're, you're particularly keen on it's not just core look at look at an f-16 isn't this excitingly pointy it's more than that isn't it i hope it is yeah so it's like you say there's satire in there there's also it's not afraid to go very stupid or to go very clever so it'll go dense and hardcore or go go stupid and hopefully all the places in between and I'm kind of interested in the the cultural side of airplanes as well 
and getting things like taking a real um, guy who worked in military aircraft development and saying to him, would Firefox work? Would the Angel Interceptor work? And those kind of things. So it's kind of, it's also partly getting experts to answer things that like the seven-year-old in me wants answered as well and getting good answers on them. And also like top tens, there's nothing wrong with top tens, but it'd be nice to have them with a little more depth. So again, doing the same treatment on top tens and giving them, giving them a little bit more depth. Well, because one I read really, really recently was you, it, top 10 fighter aircraft in 1939, because it's all very well doing top t- 10 fighter aircraft of the Second World War, because the, cause it, cause it all shakes down and eventually the, you know, the, good, the good types push through, the clever engineers figure it out, blah, 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 piston engine reaches its apotheosis and all, or zenith, if you want, and all that sort of stuff. But in 1939, it's a, it's, it's a remarkably different story, isn't it? It is, it is a different story, yeah. And there's, there's also, you see a few nations dropping out of the top 10 because they have a bit of bad luck in the war. So, um, so in 39, in 39, you've got a few, so one, one, you've got the Netherlands or Holland there in 39, uh, and they had something, uh, they had the Fokker G1, which was kind of halfway between a, a P-38 Lightning and those twin-tailed Americans from later yeah. in the war and a Morris Traveller, and they were these big heavyweight <laughs> fighters, um, made of wood, actually, interestingly enough. And, uh, yeah, they appear in, the, in any sensible top ten, I think, for 1939, and then, then the Netherlands disappears as a fighter producer, uh, and also, of course, France does as well. So things change, and some good, some good designers get lost um, because of misfortunes in history. So why are you into aircraft? What, you know, cause we well, I was going to ask that. To... Yeah, what, what's, what, what's the origins? Is this a childhood thing? It is, yeah. And I think it's probably generally just emotional immaturity. But um, it, was, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was something I, I loved as a child. My, my granddad was a, a ferry pilot with the ATA. And so I had his, all his photos and books and he flew everything or claims to have. It was probably full of nonsense. But... Um, yeah, I inherited a couple of books from him that got me completely hooked. And just, it's one of those subjects that you can just get obsessed with because it's endless. Yeah. I've got to say, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just looking up the, the Fokker G1. Uh, it's, it's not an unattractive aircraft, is it? It's not bad, is it? It's you know, a bit twin... of a chunker, but that's not a bad thing. I quite like the kind of, you know, the, the, the twin fuselage is quite good. One of the things you've tried to do on the site, though, is convey that sort of uh, uh, childish wonder, really. Because one of the things about aeroplanes, I think, it's easy to forget, isn't it? Although, although actually, since we've all been stopped flying, flying has become unroutine again. And I think the next time I fly somewhere, it will it will freshly blow my mind in a way that it hasn't and it hasn't possibly for a long time where I'm sort of more worried about the sandwich than the fact that I'm 35,000 feet up in the sky yeah. in the jet stream. How the hell has that happened? You know, the, the, the childish wonder with aeroplanes is the thing you're trying to get across in, in, in Hushkit too, isn't it? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, it is a miracle and it kind of, it gets pushed into quite a, it sometimes gets pushed into being expressed in quite a dry, dry way. And I think it's just such an exciting, a madly exciting thing. Like I say, World War II aeroplanes. I don't think there's anything more exciting than World War II aeroplanes. I mean, that was my entry point for the Second World War and interest in it, really. I was interested in it when I was really, really small. I was really interested in, 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 the, in the parachute regiment. And then I kind of sort of, I could, you know, Second World War just completely went went off my radar in my teens. And then I came back to it and I came back to it because I because I was playing cricket and I saw a Spitfire flying overhead. And I just thought, that's just amazing. Um, and and so, you know, it's been absolutely been my entry point. And I, I agree with you. And every time I kind of, 
you know, I get close to a Sakama War aircraft, I suddenly, you know, I start sort of metaphorically rubbing my thighs. I mean, I just, you know, it's just, it's, it is, it is really, it really is something very, very amazing about it. And I, and I also love it when I suddenly come across a plane that I have, I don't really know, like the Reggiani two zero zero five, which is just, I mean, it's just one of the sexiest best looking aircraft ever built yeah and then what about the Heinkel 112 I mean what happened to that how how could that not have been mass produced and I remember talking to Winkle Brown you know the legendary test pilot 485 different planes I think he flew and he said he much preferred it to the ME 109E and then others have sort of tried to tell me that it was a complete dog and you know the Germans were right not to to focus on the 109 rather than the HE 112 but you know it's a really good looking plane it's got inward folding undercarriage it's got elliptical wings really fast it's 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 powered with cannons and machine guns it's got a decent rate of climb it's got a decent dive it's highly maneuverable it's kind of what's not to like isn't it absolutely and there's there's quite a few amazing aircraft which i'll mention today i hope which didn't you know didn't make it into service but like you say there were some absolutely amazing designs that slipped by the wayside well should we should we so should we crack on with what we're what we're going to do so Hush Kits, Joe Cole's top five aircraft of the Second World War. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess, like, I was first of all thinking where to start, and I thought a good start was what nations we can narrow it down to. And as I mentioned, in, if you go into what the, the top ten is in 39, you've got the Netherlands, you've got France, um, and you've got Italy, but they kind of generally disappear. Oh, there's also the Romanians um, are working on something really yeah. amazing, but it's not quite in service yet. There's the I, uh, I, AR-80, which is pretty decent. Yeah, and it looks like a sort of slightly yeah. early uh, a Mackie 200, doesn't it? A bit. It's got that kind. It's got that kind of look. Um, and there's a few. There's a few other nations who pop up across the war with this kind of top ten fighter, like the Czechoslovakians make the B135, which is pretty decent. But only like four aircraft see combat. Um, they do destroy a B-24, though. And even though Sweden's not in the war, they do make a really decent little fighter, the J-22. And it can, it can handle pretty much anything at uh, low levels. It can take on a Mustang at low levels. Uh, it's bad at high altitude, but at low level, it's pretty kick-ass. Um, but they're not in the war. Only a few were built, so that's not going to make it in. So that kind of left me to narrow down to the big five, really, of the nations. So it's got major, major combatants and a proper mass production run. Because otherwise, cause otherwise you're, you're going to bring some Martin Baker types in, aren't you? That's the... Oh, well, <laughs> we'll hold that <laughs> An interesting thing about, about Italian and, and those sort of Balkan and, and East European planes is a lot of them have the, they have the cockpit really far back in the in the fuselage there, there was a tr- there was a trend in um italian aircraft going back to well their seaplanes their, their their racing seaplanes in the 30s which contributed to fighters you know contributed to the spitfire and contributed to the yeah. italian fighters and the italians had the most extreme example of pushing the canopy way back and having these long noses which you, you imagine isn't a great thing for a pilot on the ground because we'd be see, wouldn't be able to see anything at all. But uh, yeah, that's 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 certainly a trend. Did the IAR eighty have wide undercarriage though, like like a Hurricane, or did it have a narrow? You know, because that's after all, if you've got a lot of nose to see over, and you've got you've got those, you know, like a, those diddy undercarriage, like on a Spitfire, that's probably more of a problem, isn't it? That you can't. When you're landing it, you can't quite see how stable you are, and you can't see what's 
going on. So if you've got wide undercarriage, you're probably going to put it down more easily, aren't you? Well, I, th I think uh, with all tail draggers, you're never going to have a great view on the ground. You just you're just pointing up at an angle, and yeah, yeah, yeah. with a great big nose, you're not going to be able to see much when it's sticking like up up at an attitude. It's it um, looks sort of faintly loose. The uh, IAR eighty. That's, yeah, that's yeah. how the manufacturing brochure described it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the problems with this is you don't want to sort of slide into, well, the German aeroplanes are sort of exhibit ruthless engineering, the Italian ones, <laughs> the Italian ones, oh, mamma mia, they look fantastic. The British ones are sort of stolid and reliable and you don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to slither into that, but it's quite hard not to. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. I have, no, I have no issue with that at all. <laughs> In fact, like when I was when I was thinking about what criteria we could consider, I sort of looked at the normal ones like combat effectiveness, importance, and obviously fortune and timeliness is a big deal. How easy they are, how cheap they were to make and maintain. Yeah, um, and good I, point. I put a couple of weird ones in there out of curiosity. One was doing a moral judgment of what the aircraft did, and the other was an aesthetic judgment, and not just that, but like a sort of cultural aesthetic judgment. Is it a kind of um, is it a bit basic to like it? Is it a bit pushed in our face on plates? No names mentioned yep. for certain aeroplanes, but like, so these, these, <laughs> these, these were things that I sort of had to think about, I think about, and I kind of think aesthetics kind of are important um, because, um, look, look right, fly right thing, isn't it? Look a dog, are a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, the, I think the, the, the Thunderbolt is an ugly aeroplane, but, there ain't nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but it looks it looks good, though, doesn't it? It might be ugly, no, I but it, I think it looks I good. Do not, I do not. The, there is nothing that I, looks no, good I, about the Heinkel 177. I think the Thunderbirds are but ugly. Really? But I suppose, yeah, I do, yeah. It, it's, it's because you don't really like radial engines. I don't really like <laughs> yeah, radial, like engines, radial engines, on the whole. <laughs> Well, like inline and sleek. So. I think I'm, I'm with you on the inline, to be honest. Like, uh, they look, uh, they look like, dogs, like noble dog snouts, and that's a good look. I think the, I, on, on the on the the quote of look good, uh, fly good. Um, I spoke to the the supercar designer Peter Stevens, and I said, like, why do we like things that look fast? And he said his thought was that when you look at something, you imagine running your hand across it. So you can see there's there's a relationship between aerodynamics and beauty because if air can run smoothly over something, we can run our hand smoothly over something. So I think there might be something kind of in that if it looks good. We've done our usual thing of digressing. So not Romanian, not Swedish, not Dutch, not Italian, even though the Italians get some sort of stylistic mentions. What have we got? What, you know, are we doing this in reverse order like Miss World? So <laughs> I, was, I, I was thinking we could go through the big five. There's a few honourable mentions. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe you could choose the top five from the honourables. I've got my choices, but you might disagree with them. Mm. So we're, oh, left nice. with, we're left with Japan and Germany mm. and the Soviet Union and the United States and Great Britain. So which do you want to start on? Let's get the Soviets out of the way. Yeah. Soviet Union. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, the Soviet Union had to be included. I mean, sort of if, as, as, as you know, World War II affects them in a greater way and a worse way than anyone. So they're kind of the most important nation in many ways um, in, in World War II. And uh, like the... Like the Germans, they they like it tactical. Well, let's start with some honourable mentions. So, yeah, the, yeah. as you mentioned, the Lubotchkin 5, um, it does well in Stalingrad. It's pretty fast. It's 370 miles an hour. There's about 9,000 of them produced. Like all Soviet things, there's a load of them produced. It's very agile. 
Um, it's very fast and it's good at low and medium altitude. On the Eastern Front, most of the fighting takes place at low altitude, so your high altitude performance doesn't really matter so much. Um, it's also the last major fighter in the world mostly made of wood, uh, which is super important because everyone's running out of strategic reserves at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Russia and Soviet Union's got a load of a load of wood. And at low level, it can take on the 109, it can take on the 190, and then you, you get the Levochkin 7, which is super fast, it's cleaner, it's refined a little, and you get a load of those. It's got a supercharger that's optimised for low level, uh, and it's got pretty crap high altitude performance. Can I say crap? Yeah, yeah of course yeah. you can. Yeah, okay, yeah. it's got pretty shit high altitude performance. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the uh, another one which is super important is the the Yak family, which just to be sensible don't happen in numerical order. It's the three, the seven, and the nine. But the uh, the seven flies before the three. Um, right. And uh, I'm not even going to explain that. I think that's just fine as it is, really, isn't it? But like the <laughs> it just is. <laughs> it just is the. Uh, it's in. It's just, it's very very small, very very agile. When the when the um, Yak three came out in forty four, the Germans were told, "Don't fight it," which was kind of unusual because they had really good crew, really good aeroplanes. But they said, "Don't go near the Yak three; it's too dangerous." They were really good, and and again with all the Soviets, you're you're looking at whacking them out. Huge production runs, easy to make with cheap tooling, um, easy to repair. Um, and this, this, is a, this is a Soviet ideology that went throughout the Cold War and into Russian aircraft now, where they, um, yeah. you make them tough, you, you deal with the sort of dirt and mud of real life, and you, can, you knock out loads of them cheaply. And that's very Soviet and then Russian thinking. Um, one that's worth a mention as well is the Polikarpov 2, which was a little aeroplane, a little slow aeroplane, started off as a sort of army co-op agricultural thing, and it was doing psychological ops. It was doing harassment raids on the Eastern, yeah. Eastern Front, chucking out little bombs um, so the Germans couldn't sleep. And they really, really hated it, understandably. And it was so slow and so quiet, often they'd go in with the engines off or almost on idle, that it was unintersceptible. So it was coming, stopping everyone's sleep. So hard to see on radar. Uh, and I th- it was also flown by some female units, famously the Night Witches. You know, yeah, there was... Yeah. Um, and it was it was um, a tiny bomb load, very very simple, but twenty to thirty thousand made. And the Germans were so angry that apparently they said anyone who shot down a PO two would be given an iron cross. But that might be apocryphal. But it really pissed off the Germans. This little nuisance. Bi- I mean, it's a bi- it's a biplane, isn't mm-hmm. it? So it's got stacks of lift, so you can fly around. Uh, silently can't you with it I mean that's really I didn't know they did that that's fascinating it's an interesting example of just what you can do with a low performance aeroplane if you're sort of very brave and imaginative as well you don't need high performance aeroplanes to do amazing things and they did a lot they did a lot of caused a lot of pain with that Um, then another honourable mention on the Soviets would be the Lysenov 2 which is um, Soviet uh, produced DC-3, C-47, so it's, it's a tactical-slash-strategic transport, and it's fabulous. It's not as good as the American one. Um, the, the, uh, I believe the only aeroplane Stalin flew in was a C-47, and he specified that he wanted it to be an American-built one, not a Soviet one, because he didn't trust his <laughs> idea. That's absolutely brilliant. How funny. <laughs> so that says something, says something about Soviet bills that he... 
even Stalin wasn't, wasn't keen on them. That's really funny. And, and again, generally as a trend in Soviet aircraft, they're less, um, there's less of a safety culture, which is that yeah. fair to say? I think that probably is fair to say. I think some people might argue with that, but going into the later mix, you see they're a little bit more dangerous, a bit more crashy. But there, yeah. there was a massive political scandal about aircraft safety after the war in the Soviet Union, wasn't there? Resulted in all sorts of people being purged after the event. It's a political scandal in the in the Soviet Union, so it's not like one that any of us might ever understand. You know, it's a decision to made to purge people. But there was a there was a Stalinist purge of the people involved in aircraft production post war because of a safe because of safety scandals. And then there was there was so much bitchiness and political infighting yep. and purges. Loads of good aircraft designers popped off to Gulag, popped back later, and it was it was yep. it was a tough gig being an aircraft designer. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And da- a dangerous job as well. Yeah. And they and they put up with huge losses in their, you know, as as with all as their ground forces as well. They were willing to accept huge losses, and their aircraft yeah. was, you know, were very was savage losses. I'm so my next Soviet aircraft, which, okay, I'll say it now. This is my choice, and I think it has to be the choice. <laughs> okay, great. So it's the it's the Illusion Il two, the Sturmovik. Really? Um, right. Yeah. 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 And it, I would argue it's the most important tactical aircraft in history. Um, wow. Arguably the most important warplane in history. It's the most produced. It's vital. I would consider it vital for victory in World War II. It's really good, or, well, it's good enough. It's an armoured battlefield attack aircraft. It's not particularly fast. It's got tonnes of armour, um, and it can do the job, and you can produce it in enormous numbers. Um, and even though it's considered primitive, it actually had um, actually had a technical innovation along with the MiG-3, which was a swirl throttle. So it, it was a little uh, a device that um, causes a bit of turbulence in the supercharger. I, I'm probably describing right. this wrong. But the, the point I'm making is, even though it's seen as a very kind of backyard uh, garage invention, it, it had a couple of really cool technical innovations in it. It, it, the device made air turbulent enough as it enters the cylinder to get a thorough fuel mixture, even at low engine revs, which was kind right. of important. But I would say the Sturmovik is hugely important. It, it destroys loads of German tanks, loads of ground forces. Um, because think, it, because it's just yeah. onto the teeth and it's and it's very robust. It can take a hell of a lot of damage. And they did some studies of I've got the I've got some figures somewhere, but they did the figures on how many. Um, it was not unusual for. 8,000 to 9,000 large calibre bullets and, sorry, 9,000 smaller calibre bullets and 300 large calibre rounds to be fired at an attacking ill 2 So when they're going in for their prolonged attack yeah. runs, they're getting 10,000 rounds fired at them and the loads of them are returning, though they are suffering huge losses as well. But they've got an armoured hull, self-sealing fuel tanks, uh, filling the fuel tanks with inert gas. So they're... they're it's comparable to those who know modern aviation. They're comparable to an A-10, uh, yeah. the American cast thing, uh, close air support thing, and also the Su-25. But in some ways, probably more like the A-10, actually. But they're just incredibly tough, and they're just flown incredibly, in an incredibly bold way. And is it, is it the most produced single combat aircraft of the war? Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's... I mean, what the is it? There's nearly 40,000 of them, isn't there? Something like that? It's 36,000. 36,000. Yeah, so the, the, the really high-up productions are also... The 109 is very, very... The huge amount of those. And the Yak series, if you want, you could consider the Yak series one aircraft. If you did do that, that it would be that. 
but as it is, it's the Stomavik and the 109 are producing massive numbers. And it really is like tremendously effective and it represents a huge percentage of Soviet air power. I mean, it is Soviet air power and it's yeah. a huge tank killer. And um, there was a... Stalin said the Soviet Union needs L2s like it needs bread. It was everything, I think. It was huge, hugely important. It wasn't... It, and, but as I said, it did suffer huge losses and it was a, it was a, it was a terrifying gig to have. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. They, you know, it really wasn't fast at all, was it? No, it's not terribly fast, but it doesn't have to be super fast for what it needs to do. It's fast enough to survive. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that would certainly be my choice. Um, that's going in the top five for me. And I, I would argue it's the most important military aircraft I'm starting with. So. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Well, one or two of our Spitfire um, uh no, I would. I, yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. But. It's fa- it's okay. fascinating because it, it is that. I mean, again, we, we were talking earlier on about you know cultural expressions. This sort of thing of a rough and ready aircraft, mass produced. Um, it's not finesse. It's a, although you say it's got these technical innovations for the supercharger and stuff. You know, because because often with, with with Soviet gear, they look. You know, the T thirty four has actually got all sorts of interesting technical innovations built into its design. But the main thing is it can be driven by anybody that that, that 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 that's the thing they're trying to achieve even though it's got clever clever stuff that no one else has done yet in the design still in the end is the idea you can make lots of them really really quickly and if they get if they get destroyed well there'll be another 10 along in a minute which is sort of again it shouldn't should try to avoid epitomizing everyone's different technological solutions like that. I mean, we a while ago we talked about how the, the British solution is to basically, if you've got a problem, is to get a vicarage and fill it with clever people. The American <laughs> one is to, you know, is to build a build. The American one is to build a compound in the desert and fill it with clever people, thousands of clever people. And the German, the German one is to have like five different agencies all arguing and competing, competing for the for the a, you know a touch of the Führer's hemline sort of thing, you know. And 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 like and the Russian is. Just churn them out as many as you possibly can. Keep it simple, stupid. That kind of attitude. And, and I think there is less exceptions to the stereotype of the Russian approach than there is to the others. There's probably yeah. There probably are exceptions to the other one, though there is truth in that. And I would say I'd add to the British one that there was, to some extent, uh, an emphasis on aerodynamics and craftsmanship, yeah. where we it took us a while to kind of get into the idea of making things for mass production. We were kind of a bit caught yeah. up in making cricket bats kind of way of thinking yeah. maybe yeah 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 <laughs> we were talking to about the spitfire's wing is like a it's like a wooden wing made out of a made out of aluminium and yeah. that's how they that's why it's so complicated is that you've got the way the way you make a wing out of wood well we'll just do it out of, we'll make it out of metal rather than thinking hang on a minute the, the metal metal accords fresh advantages in its manufacturing uh, you know uh, uh, processes anyway so that's the soviets who, where, where are we going next, Joe? Well, I had my shortlist of Japanese, and then a friend, um, Ed Ward, pointed out uh, I'd missed a really good one. So the last minute, <laughs> I've added the Nakajima KI 84 Frank, or Frank is the the, uh, the Allied code, code name for it. Um, it's pretty amazing, actually, the Frank. It's very, very fast, very manoeuvrable, and it was considered uninterceptable. Um, and in the closing days of World War II, it wasn't uncommon in the Pacific for U.S. Army Air Force radar op- operators to say, forget it, it's a franc, we can't get it, forget it. Right. And it was 
Winkle Brown, who you mentioned earlier, said it was his favourite Japanese aircraft. It's got performance kind of like a Griffin Spitfire. Uh, it's going 424 miles an hour. Yeah, that's going uh, And tough. it's moving, it's shifting it, and it could surpass the top speeds, the P-47D Thunderbolt and the P-51D at around 20,000 feet. So I shoehorned that in at the last minute, but the KA-84 is pretty <laughs> shit kick. So I'm swearing, I'm swearing all right? It's yeah, right. it's, it's absolutely yeah. fine. Okay, yeah. It is, yeah. is, yeah. is shit-kicking, though, but it's, yeah, so that's really good. And then I have to mention the Zero, the most famous um, Japanese aircraft. It's a big deal. It's very light. Uh, it's insanely long-range. It's insanely manoeuvrable. It's well-armed. It's got two 20mm cannon, um, and that's right from the start, and machine guns. But it's very vulnerable, it's quite slow. Uh, initially, it didn't have to handle uh, opponents that were particularly good, and it handled them really well. And it sort of flatlines, doesn't it? It doesn't really kind of if, develop anywhere. Exactly, yeah, it does flatline. Um, and it's um, the improvements to make it less vulnerable. It, it, I mean, the original concept is you have a high fuel fraction and no armour. Like That weight is going to fuel and keeping it light to be very agile. But it was very vulnerable, so they added armour... In, in, to increase survivability, but that impaired the range capability and it kind of lost yeah. its, its its magic. And they yeah. and they kind of realised that the the uh, allies realised kind of early on that as long as you don't make the fight slow, it's not this terrifying menace that it was first thought to be. You just yeah. need to hit it fast, run away, and then hit it again, and don't get into it like a uh, dirty kind of swirling around. No menace. No no melees. Yeah, that's a good tattoo idea, isn't it? No melees. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm for the, for those reasons. I'm not gonna. The zero hasn't made my number one slot for Japan because I think it's right. it's really good. But I think its main thing is timeliness and being in the right place, at the right time, early on, and not having yeah. super stiff opposition. So it's not going to make it in for me. Um, next, we've got the Jake, uh, which is the Navy type zero um, reconnaissance seaplane. Mm-hmm. Um, seaplanes are super useful. The Japanese are really into this idea of island hopping warfare. You know, they, they don't want to rely on carriers for everything. Battleships need to carry spotters. And you've got this thing, it's served everywhere. The Jake served everywhere, but poor armament, kind of slow, very useful, very, very useful, but I'm not going to put it in, uh, which some people might argue with because it was exceptionally useful. <laughs> but what, what I am going to go for is the Nakajima B5N Kate. And this is a really good um, carrier attack bomber. Uh, it's very, very advanced for its time. Thanks to the torpedo it uses, it can launch attacks at a far greater speed than the British or the Americans can. The, uh, I believe the British and the Americans had torpedoes that were kind of limited to something like 115 miles an hour as a launch speed. So the planes had to go in slow and make them vulnerable. But there's something like 200 miles an hour the Japanese aircraft can attack. It's sunk, right. and this, this aircraft sunk four US carriers. Um, it did serious stuff at Pearl Harbor. It was r- yeah. immensely, immensely important. Um, so for me, it would be, um, yeah, it would, it would be my candidate. I don't know if you guys would agree yeah. with that on the, on the Japanese aircraft, what you would go for. Given that that theatre is really about, if you can take out aircraft carriers, you slow the other side down by, by months each time. Every aircraft carrier is worth what? A, a, a couple of months so you know encounters like midway are basically about i mean it's it, it, it there is that idea isn't there that, that that when you're fighting this kind of industrial war especially at sea especially in the pacific 
the aircraft carriers are so valuable and so and so important to your effort and also represent the pinnacle of your effort in a way that tanks being chewed up on a on the eastern front don't you know the the the, the margins the margins around an aircraft carrier are much more sensitive so I mean anything that's take anything that sinks four aircraft carriers has to be right up there has in the, to be right up there. I mean as a war winning game, you know. Yeah, and also weapon. also it's you know, it's 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 pretty quick. I mean for a torpedo bomber it's really quick. Yeah. It's got half decent range. I mean, what is it, six hundred miles, something like that? I mean, you know, that's 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 yeah. that's pretty good. It's it's yeah. I, I would argue that it's in forty forty one it's the best thing going. It's it's really good, and I I, I do realise I've missed out too actually that R should be considered as well, which is the Type ninety nine carrier bomber. And th- here's an interesting thing about this: it sunk more ships than any other Axis aircraft. So now I think about that, maybe the Val deserves a bit of consideration yeah. too. It's um, extremely accurate. When it attacks a ship, it's got an eighty percent hit rate. Wow, it's manoeuvrable, really good. It's manoeuvrable. It's very fast. And initially, it's an effective dogfighter. And it's pretty, this hasn't got any major flaws, really. Um, so actually, now I come to think of it, the Type 99 Val is pretty amazing as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would go with um, anything that sinks four aircraft carriers, though. I think it's, it's, go, yeah. it's, all about, it's all about aircraft carriers, because you sink theirs, they can't sink yours. It's, it's, it's as kind of yeah. as, di- as direct as that. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in a second. Hello there, Al Murray here. I'd just like a moment of your time to make an appeal to you on behalf of the charity DKMS. I thought because you're fans of history, you might like to make some in your own personal way. DKMS run a blood stem cell donor service to help people with blood cancer. A blood stem cell donation can save someone's life or it can buy them and their family precious time. I found out about DKMS because my nephew is very ill with a childhood leukaemia, a bitterly cruel disease. The only known cure is a blood stem cell donation. Thanks to three donors, he is still with us. What DKMS do is very simple, yet quietly amazing. They can make you into a lifesaver in waiting. Here's how. Go to their website, www dkms.org.uk and find out if you are eligible to donate blood stem cells. Register on their database and they will send you a swab pack. A year and a half ago when I first started campaigning for DKMS I had to explain what the swab pack was. Since Covid-19 perhaps you're all a little more familiar with it. You swab your cheeks, pop the swabs in an envelope and return them to DKMS. Then If and when you are found to be a genetic match for someone who needs your blood stem cells, it's like a fingerprint, only more so, they will get in touch. Your blood stem cells could go anywhere in the world. You could help someone like Finlay, wherever they are. Since the pandemic, registration has fallen, and it would be great if between us we could do something about it. Go to dkms.org.uk to see if you are eligible to donate blood stem cells. Thanks very much. Hello, James Holland here. I just want to let you know that the paperback of my latest book, Sicily 43, is out now. It's about the epic 38-day battle that raged in July and August 1943. It's a story that involves breathtaking action at sea, in the air and on land, 
His conquest involved airborne operations, daring raids by special forces, the harnessing of the Mafia, attacks across mosquito-invested plains, assaults up almost sheer faces of rock and scrub, and featured an astonishing array of highly colourful characters, and all to the backdrop of relentless heat, dust, mosquitoes, and truly brutal terrain. There's Patton, Monty, Tiger Tanks, Spitfires, and Messerschmitts. It's got the lot, so what's not to like? It's published by Penguin and available in all good bookshops in the UK right now. Grazie mille. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to Joe Coles from Hushkit, who has an opinion or two about a plane or two. Okay, so that's J- Japan. Where are we going next? We're an honourable mentions for the Germans, so I was going to say... It would be insane not to men- mention the Messerschmitt BF-109. It's produced in enormous numbers, getting on for 34,000. Essentially, they're Spitfire with sort of similar similar problems, really, to the Spitfire. Um, it's cheap, which the Spitfire isn't. It's very good. When it comes out, it's almost definitely the best fighter in the world when it comes out. There are a ton of them built. The bad points where they were particularly difficult to take off, hard to fly well, and they were running out of development potential really by about 42. And the late ones were overweight, didn't really handle well. You could argue, you could argue they're running out of development potential really by the, by the E, can't you? I mean, you know, that's the, the E's got to be the, the zenith. I think you, you could... Because you could there's so many problems with the F and the G, aren't there? And, and you look at what the favourites are of the pilots as well. I think that might back up what your, your, your argument on that. Yeah, so I think it's... It, it, it hasn't got the development potential that, say, the... I mean, the Spitfire, you could really milk it. I mean, if you... if you, I'm going to save my opinions on the Spitfire, actually. But the, uh, <laughs> the 109 was cheap and nasty and really mean. And uh, it was there. It was there in large numbers. And it was fast. It could do most things were asked, asked of it. So it's pretty yep. amazing. And I think it would be very reasonable to put it as the first yeah, yeah. German. But I'm not going to. Right. Mm. <laughs> Good. Um, the Focke Wolf F one ninety is just a masterpiece, and it comes comes in service in August forty one and scares the bejesus out of the Royal Air Force. It's something like thirty five miles an hour faster um, than the the Spitfire Mark at the time. It's got cannons. It can roll faster than the Spitfire. It's really, really, really good. Technologic technology wise, it's amazing. It's got uh, a computer controlled engine. It's got a, a bubble canopy with great visibility. It's one of the early exponents of um, human factors where it's got this brilliantly designed cockpit which gives the, the pilot better situational awareness, makes it easier for him to function. It's not the kind of mess that most other cockpits are. It's exceptionally fast, um, very, very agile. Um, it's got this big radial engine up, up front, acts, provides extra shielding for the pilot. A lot of, it can take up a lot of damage whereas a liquid-cooled engine is um, easy to damage. So it's, it's, it's a new thing, this as, as a kind of a, a, an Axis radial fighter. But it was um, just amazing. Uh, yeah. It's so advanced and so offered such superiority. It wasn't an incremental leap forward. It was a huge leap forward, and it battered, battered us for a while. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I have to say, it's my absolute favourite of the, of the German fighter planes by miles. There's just something about it. It, it looks radically different to the, the, other, the other things that are in the sky at the time as well, doesn't it? It does look like a rethink yeah. rather than a how do we take 
the stuff we've got further. It looks like a complete a complete rethink. I mean, Tank was obviously a very clever man. But it's interesting when you look at later war models, you know, that have been produced in 1944, they're really quite rough around the edges. I mean, the the, the finish on it is is not what you'd expect from Forsbrook technique and all the rest of it it, re- it really is much much rougher and that, that's of course is you know because they really are mass producing these by that stage and so they're just not so worried about the finish and all the rest of it but it's fascinating mm-hmm. yeah okay so that's the 109 to 190 so oh. now we've got the 262 so this is the first operational jet fighter so this is the big 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 technology um, it's got sweat wings. It's insanely fast. It's like 100 miles an hour faster than the fastest thing going. Um, it's amazingly well armed. It's got four 30mm cannon. That's a really big deal. Um, it's almost certainly the best fighter of the war. Uh, if you could only have one, you would w- probably want a 262 just because you can decide the fight because you're so fast. But it, I, I only, a, only a small amount saw combat. No, there wasn't a huge amount. It came too late. Um, they didn't. They didn't have quite enough of the right parts, did they? So the engines wore out in very quick order. There was. There was like, yeah. The well, the the life in the engines is something like twenty five hours until yeah, scrap. Twenty five hours. I mean, so. I, mean, I know they had lots of slaves that could kind of make churn them out very quickly. And and there were once you've got to that point, you, it's much easier to produce a jet engine than it is a, a an inline piston engine. But even so, I mean, twenty five is you know that's twenty five hours. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's nothing, it's nothing. And also they had a very long takeoff run, so they were very vulnerable taking off. And of course, Mustangs and other aircraft would swarm them as they took off. And so the, yeah. their airfields were then protected by 190s, so it was then soaking up 190s. Hitler didn't really understand initially kind of what the jet was, so it wasn't really prioritised. It could have gone into service earlier. He was tasking it with bombing when its real strength probably was as a fighter interceptor it's less maneuverable than a spitfire or mustang um but that's generally irrelevant because it can just kind of fuck off if it doesn't want to engage yeah. with fighting Th- these amazing 30 millimeter auto cannons auto cannon rather that it had later become the basis of british cannon uh right. for the next 50 years so they're they're a right. big deal but they're initially really unreliable actually um but i'm going to say it's too late it's kind of irrelevant. There's fewer than 300 saw combat. Yes, it was really good, but too late and not in large enough numbers. So for me, that's not going to make the number one slot. Right. That is amazing. Goodness. So what is going to take the number one slot? <laughs> <laughs> Clip line. Okay, so the next honourable mention is the Junkers 88. Um, it's, a nice all, it's a great all-rounder. Flies in 39. It's incredibly versatile. It can do pretty much anything asked for it. It's an early war bomber, very fast at the beginning of the war, faster than many fighters, and also very, very tough, actually. Uh, In the late war, it becomes a night fighter. It's still very fast. It's got excellent loiter time. You can stick active and passive sensors in it. It's very well armed. Um, What's bad about it? The bomber versions are cramped, and all the crew are together in the front. So if you shoot the front, you're going to kill everyone. So that's quite vulnerable way to put crew um, yeah. the early ones were fairly unreliable it's got poor defensive argu- armament oh a bit of trivia part it was partly designed by an american really it was partly designed by alfred gassner who had been the chief designer at Fokker and got involved with it so it's got a bit of american design in it, which is kind of interesting 
But the reason I'm not going to put it in is because it's an all-rounder, but it's not as good as a mosquito. So it's not going in. Ah, right. I mean, you see, the thing is, a lot of those German types <clears throat> like, um, like that, and even the 110, then turn out to be useful night fighter platforms and all that sort of thing. That actually, that, that, that you've got it, you've got it, You've got them in the wrong job to start with. Again, one of the one of the myths is that the, the the British improvise and sort of make do and mend technologically, and that's just not the case. Whereas the Germans have got it all worked out. Was in fact what the Germans do a lot of is make do and mend with their existing types because they're under such pressure industrially. So you know you stick the you stick the ECM or whatever or the the the, the, the stuff on the ME one one zero to turn it into a night fighter, and suddenly it's doing a it's doing a brilliant job. It's the solution to a problem, but it's the solution to a problem they didn't have in 1939, 1940, when those types were, uh, 941. It, it turns out it's useful for something a lot later. And they do a lot of that, don't they, the Germans? They do, and I think there's, there's other things that go against the kind of stereotype of German efficiency. So there's lots of lying, because people are so scared, there's lots of yeah. lying going on. Yeah. And also yeah. there's loads of... Um, Diagrams, for instance, in research papers on military aircraft are really beautiful and fancy, which is a total waste of time. And so there's, there's that kind of that thing as well. So there's, a, there's dishonesty and, yeah, wasting, wasting time on, on, on things in, in the German product. That's because everything's a sales pitch. Everything's conspicuous consumption. You know, everything's political in Nazi Germany. So if you can deliver the most beautiful, shiny diagram, you're going to catch someone's eye in a way that and abso- something absolutely d- and, 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 and if you're called Messerschmitt. I was going yeah, to I was going to say also personality certainly for the Soviet Union and Germany is a big deal. Um, Messerschmitt, if he got a bad specification, he wouldn't conform to it, and that really helped him. And he was very very <laughs> stubborn. <laughs> so um, I think you're you're right to say that there was lots of kind of um, uh, less rational things going on in in yeah. So, so I'm absolutely cool, because, I mean, you, you haven't mentioned the Arado 234. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's hugely relevant, would be my argument. Though I, I, Fair enough. Uh, what would be your argument for the 234? Well, just that it's a very impressive jet, it's a bomber, and it's fast, and, you know, it can, can't carry that much, but it can carry a decent load. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in my top five either, but I'm just sort of thinking, what, what can be your number one? Oh, um, well, I'm glad you asked. I was, on the two three, two, two, three, four, I think it is amazing, but it didn't do an awful lot. And I think its its importance maybe comes later. Its position in the history of technology is more important than what it did in World War Two. But you, right. you're right, it's very significant, but maybe not for World War Two. So my number one is going to be the Heinkel 177. What? Right. <laughs> what? I can't believe it. But it was a total uh, dog. It's absolute rubbish. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but let me explain. Let me explain the case for it. So um, in the mid thirties, uh, the Germans get interested in developing a heavy bomber. They want something they can go out to the Urals and uh, destroy Soviet production facilities there. Then the guy who's been pushing for bombers dies, and Udat, a um, World War One ace, yes. goes to America, sees the dive bombers are really great, and dive bombers become super trendy in Germany. So they say, can we take this heavy bomber and turn it into a dive bomber? <laughs> Heinkel say no, and they say, oh, we'll make the dive angle a little shallower. And they're like, well, still no. And they're like, no, do it. Dive bombers are great. So that was one of the problems with it. The main problem was it had these coupled engines to reduce the frontal cross-section. They shoved two engines next to each other in a nacelle, 
each one powering one propeller, and they were too tight, huge amounts of fire, oil dripping everywhere, very advanced, but absolute rubbish. But the reason, <laughs> the reason I am going to include it is because it was a war-winning weapon for the Allies. It soaked up huge amount of resources. It stopped Heinkel putting more resources <laughs> into jets. It's like this. Um, it used up an enormous amount of really, really important, something like 4,000 really important aero engines. Uh, and I Killed I, something like 31 test pilots. Killed a bunch of test, really talented, great test pilots. Um, stopped Germany able, being able to get a strategic bomber going or a strategic bomber force going, which is great. So I'm sure as like Londoners would be great, grateful that Germany didn't have loads and loads of super heavy bombers. It's soaking up all this money, all this design expertise, all these engines, which to, to decouple them is a, pain, is a pain in the ass. And if you put them back into aircraft, they're very eccentric, weird things that need different instructions. So I think the 177 was a huge, a huge war-winning aircraft. <laughs> and it's my number Brilliant. one German, and it's rubbish. Brilliant. That is Brilliant. absolutely brilliant. I love that, and I'm going to be quoting that forevermore. Brilliant. Okay, <laughs> so completely uh, fantastic. I love it. <laughs> should we should we go across the pond, as uh, people used to say and don't say anymore? That, the, the, the Americans. Across the we gotta, we gotta, pond. Well, obviously we're going to finish on the Spitfire. So, um, uh, <clears throat> so um, uh, let's go to America. So I'm going to start with honourable mentions. Um, I'm going to start with the. North American P-51 Mustang, as an honourable mention. Uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a fabulous aeroplane. Um, the British want P-40s early on in the war, because they need more fighters. They asked North American, and North American says, well, we, the actual manufacturer of the P-40 was pretty busy, so they said, North American, can you make them? And they said, no, we'd rather not make you something obsolete, we'd rather make you something good. And actually, the designer of the Mustang is actually a German-born citizen. Yeah, so really, you see, yeah. absolutely. So you, you see a, in a, f a few examples of this where national borders aren't as rigid as you as you as, as you might think. Relating to you know, in, in in fact, there's German aircraft with American designers, American aircraft with German designers, British yeah. innovations on German fighters. The P fifty one's amazing, absolutely amazing. It uses um, the Meredith effect where it gets some extra thrust out of a radiator. The Spitfire did it a little bit, but this really uses it. It's a generation ahead of the Spitfire in terms of aerodynamics. It's super clean. It's ch cheaper to construct. It's, it's faster than a Spitfire 9 on the same engine. It's got bananas range, thanks to the cleanliness and the larger fuel fraction. It can fly to Berlin and back. And once it's there, it's as good as any German fighter, which no one else can do at the time. So it's, it's amazing. It's cheap. Uh, it's much cheaper than the bigger. It's about fifty thousand uh, dollars compared to eighty-three thousand for a P forty-seven. So it's good value. What's bad about it? It's not as nice to fly as a Spitfire. It's not quite as manoeuvrable as a Spitfire. It's less popular with pilots. It's got some problem, problem uh, some handling characteristics that are a bit dodgy. Snap, snap rolls at low um, speeds. It's difficult to bail out due to the weird airflow around the cockpit. And it's vulnerable in ground attack due to the fact that the big radiator. But it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, but it's See, not the I, one I would one. argue that that is the most important aircraft that's ever been made. <laughs> okay. Because well, of I, its I, range, because, I think, because yeah. I think the war is won in the West, not on the Eastern Front. 
because uh, I think it's all about logistics and, and the operational level and and, uh, and finances. And I think what, what breaks Germany is that is the fact that 43% of its budget by 1944 is spent on fighter aircraft rather than on, you know, 7% on panzers. Uh, and I think it is the it is the P P fifty one that enables bombers to go deep into the Reichenhammer oil oil refineries and uh, Luftwaffe factories, and also enables it to then clear the skies over over Northwest Europe. Yeah, forces uh, the Luftwaffe. And, and, that, and without that, you yeah. can't clear Northwest. You can't. You haven't got the conditions in place for the Allied invasion of Normandy. So you know, without that, you're stuffed, and you've got the whole of Europe being run by the communists as opposed to kind of you know half of Europe ending up being democratic at the end of the war so that's why I've, I, I, I can't think of an aircraft that has a greater impact so you, you're sounds to me like you're more like a more of an eastern front man so so that's where the ill two comes in but I'm more of a western front man so I would I would argue that it's the Mustang I, th- I think that's that's a very that's like a, a compelling a compelling argument I guess what I could say it wouldn't have been impossible to create long-range Spitfires um, I mean, the reason that wasn't done is there was no need because the Mustang was so good, but it wouldn't have been impossible to create... Tread, so- tread softly, Joe. Tread softly. <laughs> you, tre- you, you tread on, on James's arguments. <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I take that point. I take that point. But I think, you know, you've got to judge them on what on the impact that they have. And, you know, I, I think the Spitfire would unquestionably be the number one had they done more than just sort of fly them off aircraft carriers at the mouth of the Mediterranean. Yeah, no, I, I think that's certainly a, a strong candidate. And it's also probably shooting down more um, enemy aircraft than any, anything else American, I would have thought, as well. So it's, it's certainly a strong candidate. Um, it's bringing, bringing the Luftwaffe to battle and defeating it is the, is the, the key. It's, it's, it's a big deal, and it's, it's amazing. It's, ama- it's amazing what it offers. Like, like you well, say... Okay, so, yeah. what, okay, so, so that's, that if that's just an honourable mention... <laughs> Uh, okay, well then, we, then we've got the P forty seven Thunderbolt. Um, it could do anything. Uh, its range wasn't quite as good at the P fifty one at the start, but it was it was incredible. It comes in nineteen forty two. It's very 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 fast. There's a good amount of them made, sixteen thousand. It's incredibly versatile. It's very very. Um, it's equally happy at high or low altitude, which is kind of unusual. It can carry a ton of weapons. It's extremely tough. Can take a load of damage amazing roll rate it can dive exceptionally fast like yeah and it's eventually got an amazing range um and uh, as you were saying range is is really important this time for escort fighters and um for get you know getting getting there but going against it it's not super maneuverable apart from roll rate and it's very very expensive and it's using tons of fuel admittedly the fuel is less of an issue for the um us than it would be for germany and that, that's another thing i should have added to the Heinkel 177 is what's also great about it is it uses tons of fuel so it, it also it's it's burning up all this precious fuel as well <laughs> um hellcat deserves a mention um yeah. as well certainly the corsair does they're great carrier fighters they're really good they turn the fights in the pacific airwise uh, and that changes things and as you know pacific's very important so that's a big deal my last honorable mention is the b29 uh, B-29 is the biggest deal in terms of a project of the war. It's yep. far more expensive than the Manhattan Project. Yep. It's immensely futuristic. Um, it's got remote control turrets. It's got pressurised cabin. It can fly incredibly high, carry a load of bombs. It's almost uninterceptable. 
Uh, it's very well defended. It's very comfortable for the crew. But the engines are prone to catching fire. It's complicated. And for the huge amount of money that goes into it, it doesn't do much. It kind of started the Cold War, which is not necessarily a great thing. <laughs> Um, uh, it did loads of horrendous things which you could argue about the efficacy of but they were kind of horrendous Um, so the B29 is not going to win it for me for those reasons though in terms of technology it's amazing and it's 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 you know the reason we have Boeing 737s all over the place now it's a big deal but I'm not I'm not putting it in (laughs) the thing is that the B the B29 uh is one of those things from the Second World War that is all about the, you know, what's to come rather in a way than what's going on. The, 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 the impetus to build it is interesting. They've got, they've got a, a, they kind of got an aeroplane that could do that. The Allies do at least. Again, it's that thing you said that you, you, could, you could make long-range Spitfires if you wanted. They've c- kind of got the kit to do it, but, but, but it's, they take it on to the next level. And, and as you say, as a result, start the Cold War. It swings and roundabouts, <laughs> isn't it, with, with the B-29? Yeah, I mean, you can argue, of course, that the B-24 has greater impact because of, of its VLR and the fact, if you argue, and I think it's easy to argue very convincingly that the Battle of the Atlantic is the most important theatre in the entire Second World War, then then the VLR B-24s at the very least need an honourable mention because they are game changers. Well, in that case, I'm going to pretend that I included it now. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're right, so I'm going to pretend I included it. <laughs> um, so what, what's your number one then? My number one is going to be the C-47. Right, yes. And there's the, yes. the, the famous quote by Eisenhower that four yes. weapons helped most to win the war. The C-47, the Jeep, the bazooka and the atomic bomb. Uh, it's the best tactical and strategic transport at the time. Um, I'll go on to There's a couple, of, a couple of rivals to it, but it's extremely reliable. It does everything. And James mentioned the importance of logistics, and for logistics, it's it's a big deal. Um, yeah. it was well, it's responsible important. for keeping China in yeah. the war, really, isn't it? And tying down vast numbers of Japanese resources and troops in China is almost entirely down to down to C forty sevens flying over the hump. And it's important in the east. It's important in the west. It's important in, uh, over the Himalayas. You know, it's 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 doing everything everywhere. Um, and it's far better than the Junkers fifty two. It's I suppose its only rival would be the C forty six which is a later, more complicated um, Amer- uh, American aircraft designed for the Himalayas. So would you be kind enough to explain a bit about the importance of the Himalayas in crossing the Himalayas? Yes. So, um, so, so the, the, the Chinese nationalists are, are fighting against Japan. Japan has invaded um, China in 1937, um, hasn't won outright. So the war is ongoing and there's a kind of sort of impasse, a sort of defensive kind of, you know, which is just sucking up vast numbers of Japanese troops and resources for no immediate huge game which is precisely why they then start spreading their wings try and get the resources they need from elsewhere you know from from french indochina later vietnam um you know dutch east indies malaya singapore um philippines and so on but 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 the only way that the chinese nationalists can um stay in in power once burma's been taken um uh, because the burma road is gone um is is through western supply lines and the western supply lines are supplied over the himalayas with using these c-47s primarily the himalayas are known as the hump so they are just constantly they're, they're based in assam and they're just flying in supplies all the time into into china and the, and the yeah the c-46 and the c-47 are doing great work on that there's the c-54 as well yes. which is big but it's kind of inflexible it's um 
it's a bit prissy about where it wants to take off and land from. It's great for the Berlin airlift, but yeah. um, not so not so good for the Himalayas, maybe arguably. Um, so that yeah, I would say that's my C forty seven is going to be my number one American. Um, what do you think about that? Would you be comfortable? Can't, I can't... Can't argue with that at all. Well, I, I can because I would argue that the P fifty one is, but 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 I think that's a good shout. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so finally, blighty. So uh, number five, Mark nine Spitfire. Number four, the Mark five Spitfire. Number three, <laughs> the fourteen. Um, the fourteen. Number two. Anyway, so what, and what, then the mosquito. It'd be really good if I didn't even put an honourable mention for Spitfire next. <laughs> so what, what have you got for us? What have you got for us? Right, okay, well, first of all, um, let's start with the hurricane. The meat and potatoes of kind of the early part of the war. It's, um, it's there and it's good enough. Uh, it's fast enough. It's battle damage resistant. It's very important in the Battle of Britain. It's available, easy to repair. Um, it's you can make about one and a half or two hurricanes for the amount of man hours it takes to build a Spitfire, which at the time is hugely important. But I guess the, the most the, the one I mean the Battle of Britain is hugely important for the hurricane. But I, I would say that the Sea Hurricane actually should get an award for being there when it was needed. It was it did hugely significant things in tiny numbers um, with, you know, about defending Malta and Pedestal. I might hand over to one of you to explain about the importance of those operations, but the Sea Hurricane was, was, was there and the Hurricane was there when nothing else was available, doing hugely important things in tiny numbers. But again, I, I would... Well, the, the, the problem with the Hurricane on Malta is that, is that you've, got, you've got enemy fighter bases 60 miles away um, on southeast Sicily, and the hurricane simply cannot climb fast enough to intercept them before they reach the island from Malta because their rate of climb is so slow. So I would, I would say that the, the the Achilles' heel of the of the hurricane is its slow rate of climb, comparatively. You know, obviously, it absolutely does a job in 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 the Battle of Britain. I mean, you know, I don't I don't buy the yeah, but don't forget the the hurricane shot down more than the the, the Spitfire in the Battle of Britain kind of argument because there were more of them and because they were broadly speaking, shooting down bombers, which are a hell of a lot easier to shoot down than, than 109s and even 110s. So that doesn't really kind of add up. But but, but the the slow rate of climb is a, is, a, is an issue. That, that's what that's what does for it in the Middle East and, and particularly on Malta. It's where, where it is, it is it is not fit for purpose on, on Malta. And, and I, would, I would maybe add to that the importance of it on Russian and Med uh, yeah, six thousand well. something like that go yeah. to go to no four four and a half thousand go to Russia. I think yeah, it's not it's not an insignificant number. So I'd I'd say I'd say that the hurricane's best quality is it's good enough and it's available. It's yeah. not it's a stellar performer when it first comes out, but uh, but it, it actually was a conscious decision not to make it to advance, which proved um, the right one. I'd say well, it's a thirties. It's a 30s plane, isn't it, is the thing. Construction-wise, yeah, and that, and that enabled it to, to be produced very rapidly and to be repaired. So it was, it was, it was necessary and important, but it's not stellar. So yeah. it's going to be an honourable mention. OK. Uh, have you heard of the Spitfire? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, it's come up. From time to time, James, James isn't a fan of the Mark One, of course. Oh, right. why, why, why not? <laughs> I am. I am. I do like the Mark One. There's an ongoing gag. It's amazing. Uh, loads of produced. It can. It can always do what's asked for. It. It's very fast. It's decently uh, decent maneuverability. Beautiful handling. 
Uh, it's the fastest in the world at service entry, very good rates of climb, uh, hugely important propaganda-wise. It looks beautiful, it sounds beautiful, it's, um, it's kind of self-advertising and had great development potential. I mean, you could argue how much a light Spitfire is an early Spitfire. That it would be easy to give them diff- call them different aircraft, but there is, there is a lineage there. It's amazing. And like I say, it does everything very important at the Battle of Britain, very important loads of places. The Soviets aren't so keen on it because it's a little bit fussy and, and fragile for their needs. It's really crap as a carrier fighter. It's too fragile. As, as a short-range interceptor, it's amazing. It's really, really good. But I'm not putting it in. It's right. It's honourable mention. Okay, fine. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll just... <laughs> what we're going to do with that is we're just going to roll that hand grenade into the We Have Ways <laughs> podcast stream... And see how it explodes. <laughs> then we get the Lancaster, fantastic heavy bomber, brilliant at everything. Uh, incredible bomb load, only surpassed by the B-29. Uh, gets you there, gets you back. Great range, decent performance at service entry. Pretty easy yep. to fly, but poorly defended, difficult to escape from, and responsible for thousands upon thousands of civilian deaths, which um, even though it's amazing engineering, that kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth. So I don't want to put it forward for that reason, even though... Engineering-wise, incredible. Oh, something I wanted to mention is also uh, a, a positive thing about the Lancaster is that some of the factory workers had sex inside the aeroplane uh, while it was in the factories, and some of them produced life before they um, <laughs> before they took life. And I don't think anyone would be would find a Halifax sexy. I think the, the it was it's a reason it happened in the Lancaster. Not. So Very true. True. So that's that's a, a tick. That's a plus for the for the uh, Lancaster for me. Uh, you mentioned the Martin Baker MB5. All this speculative nonsense I'm going to engage in. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's an amazing plane. Uh, it's fast. It's long range. It's well armed. It's it sets the stand for ergonomic cockpits, ease of maintenance. Great. Uh, it's pretty much faultless for a yeah. fighter in forty four. But it's built by a manufacturer who can't mass produce a whole aircraft and there's there's also loads of brilliant aircraft already being made so though it was it's a strong contender for the best british piston fighter it's kind of not necessary but i'm putting it in there because it's amazing yeah um and i'm going to put as the number one uh british aircraft i'm going to put the de havilland mosquito yeah i I don't think you'll have a huge amount of complaints about that I mean, obviously, I'm a bit disappointed not to see the Tempest, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> are you a, are you a Tempest fan? Yeah, I'm a bit of a Tempest fan, but that's fine. But but, but 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 emotionally, rather than you know, for, for you, you can't really sort of you know dig deep and. But the mo- the mosquito has everything, doesn't it? Though it's got. I mean, it, aside from the Merlins, the romance of the De Havilland family sticking with it. The fact it's the wooden wonder, all those things. Forget if you forget those things, it's an absolutely killer um aircraft isn't it it can do everything it it, it's really quick it's stealthy all that you know all all that it's a fighter it's a uh, maritime attack plane everything it can do can literally do anything and um and of course it's one of the great what if planes isn't it what if they just built more of those and not lancasters any plane that is causing a debate like that against the best of the strategic bombers is a is a obviously a well, a brilliant it's, bit of it's, kit. It's the only real contender for a single aircraft to win the war with. Yeah, I think. Right. Would you? I mean, you so you wouldn't put, but you wouldn't put it above the um, the Sturmovik. Uh, I'm not for significant. For I, it's, uh, 
For importance, I'm not, no. And, I, and, and sort of in terms of looking at why some of the reasons I put the Soviet Union ahead is I'm just looking at in terms of the human impact on the Soviet Union, that the Great Patriotic War in terms of civilian and military deaths is, is so outnumbers anything else. And also, obviously, should mention China, but China is not really doing much in aviation. Um, so the mosquito also, you, I mean, if you wanted to be critical, which is hard because it is amazing. Now, in fact, I don't want to be too critical, but it, it did get some pretty glamorous gigs. But it, it could do those glamorous gigs. Um, and it's such a clever, elegant design. You take away, you make the thing out of wooden um, composites, so it's very light. You take away the turrets, so it's very light. You take away extra crew members, and you've got something, yeah, like I said, it's uncatchable. Um, it's amazing at reconnaissance. And do you know what? Actually, sorry, if I could add one thing to the Spitfire, I would say that the PR Spitfire is, it, is worth an honourable mention because it's amazing. Uh, it's, until the Arado you mentioned, it was had such superiority, and it was the... the, the uh, scientifically very advanced and how they were looking at making these these drag reductions on it um, and very very effective so i if you if i could add that to the spitfire the pr spitfire is amazing the yeah the mosquito is just uh it's a it's a fighter it's a bomber it's strike it's recce it's anti-shipping it's night fighter it's pathfinder it's can be built in loads of different places by woodworkers it's very strong um it's just amazing and beautiful and it's the Havilland uh, and I love it so for me the mosquito yeah there's not much bad you can say about it it's got a, a high stall speed it's got some dodgy characteristics if it loses an engine but not much wrong with it at all I think it's amazing but I think we all we yeah. all do we, we all have dodgy characteristics if we lose an engine so yeah <laughs> in that respect it's only human Joe, this has been absolutely brilliant. I'm really sorry, but this is all we do have time for. Um, people, go to the Hush Kit site. There is a oh, book to buy. Yes. Um, the, the, a crowd, uh, it's a, a crowdfunded book. The Hush book, Kit book it? of Warplanes, which you can get from the Unbound website. Please do that. It's a fabulous book and you can support us with that. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and the hushkit.net website as well. We've got like a thousand articles on planes, all manner of crazy yeah. stuff on that. So this is what we've done here is merely uh, offered the, the tip of the tip of the iceberg to our listeners and an itch that will never be uh, uh, scratched sufficiently I think yeah I've um, got Joe, to say Joe that was utterly brilliant and completely force. totally enjoyable I loved every yeah. minute of that thank oh, you oh thanks well, likewise likewise thanks everyone for listening we'll see you soon cheerio <laughs>